Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. When I was in seminary, we talked a lot about leadership. Leadership was a big discussion, and a lot of times when you read the case studies about leadership, you saw kind of the same person as the ideal leader, characteristics and things that made them who they were. And a lot of the things you saw were were things that if they were channeled in a good way, could be great. But if they were channeled in a negative way, could be incredibly destructive. And so that's why when I read the book by Chuck DeGroat called When Narcissism Comes to Church, I realized that that was the image of when things went wrong. Chuck did not want to write this book. He'll talk about that in the episode. But after a few years of watching leadership failures, of watching cultures, not only of domineering, overbearing, dominant leadership that was unhealthy, but also of cultures that just thought they were better than everybody else because they were more pure or more holy or closer to what God wanted them to be. After all of that, he had to write something to help bring healing to people who have had trauma at the hands of narcissistic people, but also narcissistic leaders. He's going to define that word and talk about what that means when we get into the episode, so I'm not going to talk any longer. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to this conversation with our friend, Chuck. Well, Chuck, thanks for a bit of time today. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be with you. So as I told you, we talked before uh, we got started recording here. I just, I just found myself immersed, and and I don't know how to feel about that uh, in your book when narcissism comes to church, and mainly because I saw so many things in it that I thought, oh, these are critical, and I looked at my own past, my own history, and saw places where that was deeply affecting me. Um, but I also am like, why, why am I so immersed in this idea? And so I want to talk about that uh, as we go, but I want to thank you for writing it because I feel like we all need this conversation right now. Mm. Yeah, thanks for saying that. So where we start with everybody, and uh, I always love to hear the variety of answers on this, is uh, the podcast is geared towards gaining ideas and discussion and conversation around wisdom. Um, For you, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you start? Where's the beginning point for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I look back to an ancient understanding, a Hebrew understanding, where w- wisdom is placed on a spectrum from wisdom to foolishness, right? And I, I like to think of wisdom as an invitation to wholeheartedness, whereas foolishness is a kind of heart, hard-heartedness. And so the wise person is a, available to God, attuned to God, uh, the wise person is attentive to herself, to her own emotions. Uh, she's self-aware. The, the foolish person uh, is hardened, is turned inward, isn't able to sort of uh, attend to himself or herself or others in a meaningful kind of way. And so uh, wholeheartedness versus hard-heartedness is the direction I tend to go in when I talk about wisdom. And so for you, how does that wholeheartedness influence the work that you do now? Because what I think is very, very good and rich and holy is the fact that this book didn't come first. The work came first, and then the book sort of flowed out of that. So how does that wholeheartedness uh, 
connect with the work that you're doing right now? That's a great question. And Wholeheartedness was the book I wrote right before this one. And I'd much rather be talking about that today than narcissism in the church. But, you know, when we talk about wholeheartedness, we're talking about a way of flourishing in the world, in a world that is divided and polarized uh, and amidst people who are divided and polarized, right? And so we're all wrestling with our own divided hearts, um, our own hard-heartedness. And so wholeheartedness is an invitation to to integration, to union, to communion, to awareness, to attention, to presence, things like that. And I think in, in a way, we flip the script with the narcissism book and we talk about the divided heart, the false self that we live out of um, that looks like, for a narcissist, that looks like at times a very grandiose person, you know, who's confident, arrogant, put together, in control, but is really divided in himself and and uh, in, in some deep pain and mired in some deep shame. And so in a way, this narcissism conversation is about a person divided. And what I love about diving into this is I think there's such a key, there's a key piece that when you hear an ism, any of the isms, yeah. uh, it's, it's easy to see that as a very technical, uh, psychological, very like, very detailed, very logic, very much about the helping. Right. But with narcissism, the root is actually a story. Yeah. So the story of Narcissus and this ancient myth that sort of informs the language around narcissism. So can you can you wrap that into a package and say, okay, this is the story, but this is also what what we mean when we say narcissism. Yeah, yeah. The story of narcissists, I won't tell the whole story, but but the bottom line is Narcissus was incapable of love, um, of receiving love, of giving love. Uh, he was enamored with his own image. He was in love with himself in a sense. And, uh, and I, I do think that that's, that's the really sad story of narcissism, um, this incapacity to love and be loved. When we think about narcissism, more often than not, we think about grandiosity. But I quickly go to... Uh, how lonely the narcissist is, uh, even though he gathers friends around him. You know, I've worked for years uh, with churches, with narcissistic pastors, and he can be the life of the party, and he can throw really good parties, uh, but he is profoundly lonely. You know, he's, he's sort of stuck at that pool, enamored with his own uh, self-image. And, um, and so that's, that's the part of this whole thing that, as I said a little bit earlier, makes this conversation so hard. Uh, we tend to be angry about the damage and debris field caused by narcissists, but, but I, I do have some compassion for the lonely, ashamed uh, little boy, little girl beneath the narcissistic false self, uh, because there's got to be lonely inside there. And you share a... a a quote about, you know, one person, I think it's William Lash. Maybe I'm getting that name wrong. Yeah. yeah Christopher Lash. Christopher Lash yeah. talks about that narcissism is longing to be free from longing. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. That's an interesting, that's an interesting counterpart to the wholeheartedness and loneliness and dividedness that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting and it's deep, right? I mean, we could probably sit around at 11 o'clock at night over a couple of glasses of wine and talk about that quote, but the longing to be freed from longing is, uh, you know, the, the narcissist can't live with longing. 
he's constantly grasping after something, control, right? Some sort of control. Uh, I, I think I, I think uh, Augustine said our hearts are restless until they rest in God, right? But the narcissist is ultimately uh, restless and and grasping after anything that will give him some sense of control in the world. And so, you know, underneath the waterline, I always like to picture human beings as a kind of iceberg, you know, to use this image of an iceberg, you know, and below the waterline where you can't really see is, is someone who is uh, chaotic, uh, you know, grasping, trying to, and, and people experience narcissists as chaotic often, right? They're constantly shifting. I want to do this. I've got a new vision here. Let's start this new program. I want to do this big sermon series. We're going to change the, you know, whatever it is, right? But underneath, there's just chaos um, and incapacity to live with a sense of longing, to be at rest, uh, to live surrendered before God. As a, as a person who traffics, I use that word often. I shouldn't. A person who kind of lives in the conversation around spiritual formation and, and especially around who lives around the conversation around practices. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been preparing for a class talking about Sabbath and I've been dealing with Wendell Berry's concept of the given life yeah. and how that limitation is so important. And what I hear in the narcissist conversation is it's free. It's wanting to be free from the limitations of being human in some way. That's right. Like to be superhuman yes. in a way. Yeah. But I also see that as part of our cultural makeup. So I, I guess it's it's silly to say there have never been narcissists, but do we live in a more, I guess I would say it this way, not to be a closed-ended question. Yeah. How is our culture yeah. actually impacting this development and explosion of some of the narcissistic tendencies we see? Yeah. I, I like where you started, and that connects back to that, uh, that original quote about longing, right? Because this this sense of wanting to be freed from from longing is 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 also a sense of wanting to be free from limits uh, from our human fragility from our human frailty uh, we're recording this uh, I think a couple of weeks before Ash Wednesday where we remind as we impose ashes as pastors we remind people that they're dust and to dust they'll return and th- that's not a um, when we do that, we're not telling people, you're just bad, you're dirty, you're awful, you're disgusting. We're saying, no, you're limited, you're fragile, uh, you're needy. And, and, and I, think, uh, I think that's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? And, and so what I'd say to answer your question is narcissism has sort of morphed and changed over the years. Um, I think the Tower of Babel story is a story of narcissism. I think uh, the stories of the kings of Israel are stories of narcissism to some degree. I think if you look at the medieval Catholic Church and some of the popes, uh, stories of narcissism. Uh, so when people ask, wow, are we living in a kind of new kind of narcissistic age? There's a part of me that wants to say, yes, yeah, it's changed. It's, it's different. Uh, it's morphing. Uh, we see new expressions of it. Uh, with every generation. I talk about that a little bit, I think in chapter one or the introduction, I talk about how this has shifted over the last several generations, but it's still fundamentally the same. We want to live beyond a sense of limits. You know, the the serpent slithers up to Adam and Eve and says, surely God didn't tell you that you can't eat from that tree. And I, and I think 
immediately there's this question of, is God holding out on me? And so we grasp, you know, we grasp for power, we grasp for, for control, we grasp for something that's outside of our reach for that elusive something more, as my friend Sharon Hurst says. And that's, uh, that's the way we make our way toward narcissism. So in a sense, we're all, we're all kind of narcissists at some level, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, not me because I'm not, but I, so there are other I people who made are. that exception. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that draws into, you open the door to two things that I thought were so important because the term itself can become just a stamp. Sure. And so you talk about the difference between identity and patterns. And then you also, you, you talk about the fact that there's healthy forms. There's like a healthy, there's a a continuum of narcissism that, you know, we may use the word healthy loosely. Talk about that idea of patterns and how there can be a a continuum of narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first piece is important because when we label someone with narcissistic personality disorder, uh, we're talking about a kind of disordered personality pattern. We're not talking about their true, I say true, like ontological self in, in Jesus Christ. You know, we're talking about a, a way of living in the world that uh, is problematic, that that's compensatory, we say in the world of psychology, that is really trying to get needs met in a way that's ultimately self-sabotaging. So, uh, and, and I say this when I talk about the Enneagram as well. The Enneagram, if you're an Enneagram 3, for instance, that doesn't tell me about who you really are. It does tell me a little bit about your false self and how you cope in the world. And so that's an important piece. Uh, I, I think I, I want to get away from this idea of, of labels. And yet I say in the book, it's important to, to use labels at times. And we do in the psychological world. We have we have our Bible, the DSM-5, you know, um, and, and this gives us particular names for personality disorders and mood disorders. And narcissistic personality disorder is a personality disorder uh, with c- close cousins like borderline personality and antisocial and histrionic that give us language to, to name particular realities. And when people hear this, when they've been impacted by someone who's narcissistic, it's like, oh, thank you. Uh, because now I know I, I don't feel as crazy as I used to. Now I know that I've been in relationship with someone who is narcissistic. Now, to get to the second piece, uh, I do think that there's a healthy narcissism. And I talk about this, especially in the context of of good attachment in childhood. Uh, what we now know, what we've known over the last, let's say, 40, 50 years is that secure bonding in the earliest months and days of a child's life is uh, more important than anything else, almost anything else. And a child who securely bonds with mom, um, who has a, has a sense of herself that is clear and strong and secure, such that when she's four years old and she learns to do a cartwheel, if you can do cartwheels at four, I'm, I'm just kind of making this up right now. And she says, mommy, mommy, look at me. There, there's a healthy sense of, yeah, look at me. But someone who isn't securely attached to perhaps is anxious and is sort of living in the world to, to, to get the attention that she didn't get, to get the security or bonding that she didn't get, her mommy, mommy, look at me will be a kind of desperate cry for attention. And there's a difference. You know, you say mommy, mommy, look at me at four years old. But if you're still saying that as a megachurch pastor at 45 years old, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
Gosh, and I see you talk about doing work as a uh, you work with an organization as a you work as a consultant and a lot of times as someone who works with um, the developmental process in church planting or leadership, yes. you know, inviting new leaders to do big projects. Most some people may not know about this, but there's this whole uh, thing called CPAC where there's a church planters assessment. Mm-hmm. So before anybody right. goes to plant a church. Right. So it's a good place to stand. You have a good vantage point to see this. What is it about leadership, yeah. whether it's in a church or a family, that seems to connect well with people who have these narcissistic patterns? Yeah, it's interesting. This whole leadership conversation is interesting. Um, and I was I was in the church planning world for a number of years before I made my way to the seminary here six and a half years ago. But you know, when I was in when I was more uh, when I was working more in that church planning world, it was interesting when people talked about leaders, the kinds of leaders that could plant churches. They often talked about a kind of leadership style uh, that was bold and confident and secure and inspiring and influential. And, and a number of these church planner assessments actually have categories like that. And I, I remember as I, as I started out doing assessments, when I looked at the kinds of descriptions of, of, of what they would consider to be a strong leader, the kind of leader that could plant a church, I was, I sort of scratched my head and I, I thought, I, I think that that matches up pretty well with narcissistic personality disorder. And so we sort of set the table uh, in, in creating assessment processes that sort of, sort of bless these characteristics at times and fail to look at the shadow side, the kind of the beneath the waterline content. Like it, there, there are confident leaders who aren't narcissistic. Uh, and, and so I want to, I want to say that. Um, but oftentimes, you know, when I've been the psychological assessor in these processes and I've come to them and I said, hey, I think we need to be a bit more curious about what's going on uh, beneath the waterline in this guy's life. You know, I think that there might be a larger story and there might be some pain or shame or depression or anxiety or porn addiction, whatever it is. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard them come back to me and say, Chuck, you know, you, you psychologists, you always want to tell the negative that, you know, the dark side of the story. He's fine. He'll be great. He's already raised $200,000. He'll be just fine. And they send him on through five years later, seven years later, 10 years later. uh, I see his name pop up uh, on Christianity Today or in the news or something like that. It's so sad to me. So we're talking about this in terms of uh, leadership, but right. narcissism expresses itself. Some of the stories in the book you tell actually have less to do with leadership. Yeah. I mean, it could be coincidental, yeah. but they also have to do with marriage. That's right. Um, how especially husbands, male husbands yeah. dealing with their wives. So what are some of the hallmark, like general red flags that you see that you're like, I think we might be dealing with NPD or narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, that's good. That's where this all began for me, by the way. Um, and and a brief piece about that, we do see a greater prevalence of narcissism in men than we do women. And, and that might change over time as women move into positions of leadership, cultural norms about uh, masculinity and femininity change, things like that. That Those numbers may change, but that's what we see mostly. And for me, it was when I first uh, started in pastoral ministry in the mid-90s and uh, being the spiritual formation pastoral care guy, you know, so I would 
I'd see couples come in, you know, the senior pastor would send a couple to me. Uh, maybe it's one of the elders and uh, I'm listening to them. They're sitting on the couch across from me and I'm, I'm seeing him shut her down, kind of bully her or maybe bring up scriptures to, to sort of remind her that, that she ought to be quiet and not speak that, you know, he has the final say or final authority on things. And I, you know, I, I got a mental health counseling degree while I was in seminary too. And so I had some categories for this. I have more categories now, of course, but you know, I sort of said, something's not right with this, you know, it didn't sit right with me. And uh, of course uh, it became a little more messy when I, you know, go back at, or when I push back against this guy and say, Hey, you're bullying her right now. Or I, my experience of you is that you've tried to control our session over the last 50 minutes or so. What's that about? And so manipulation, bullying, control, and uh, a lack of empathy, really an incapacity to hear his wife, to really hear what she's sharing, um, a desire to fix, a need to shut down the conversation. All these are characteristics that I often see in relationships like that. So narcissism then in, in the church, it's interesting that as I listen to this, a lot of the characteristics are living in tension, right? So they could be, like you said, strong leadership is not always narcissism, right? but it could be. Yeah, it could be. And I think some of the key to that, especially in church leadership, is you, you talk about narcissism as a personal thing, but also about narcissistic systems. That's right. And two specific ones, like a grandiose narcissistic system versus a vulnerable narcissistic system. I think that's so important because um, the thought I had while I was reading it is narcissism is a challenge and it's a problem. And at the same time, we seem the people who the rest of the people around the narcissistic leader seem to some for some reason like that. That's right. Or promote it or protect it. How does that I'm asking you to explain in, you know, short terms, yeah, yeah. a massive world changing kind of thing. I know. <laughs> right. right. And, and that's so important that, uh, you know, these narcissistic leaders don't exist in isolation from the rest of the, the system, people or staff or leadership team around them. Uh, I was working with the church a number of years ago. And uh, in the end of our process together, the senior pastor was asked to resign and I remember a couple of leaders on the team saying to me, well, now he's out of the way, we'll be good, right? And I said, no, 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 no. Uh, now we've got to really get to work and talk about why it was that you were drawn to him. You know, they're, they're often, we call them mere hungry followers of, of narcissistic leaders. They're, they're, um, there's a psychological need for the strength of a narcissistic leader and they attach themselves to the narcissistic leader and and they they sort of uh, they sort of live like um, he's like the host animal, and they they live off of his energy and his enthusiasm and his strength. And oftentimes, the narcissistic leader will bring along people who uh, need uh, need something from him. Uh, oftentimes, 
it's confidence themselves. You know, it'll be, uh, I was working with a particular church where the narcissistic leader, uh, large church pastor brought along men in particular who weren't in ministry. Uh, maybe they were in real estate or in something else, right? And brought them in to be staff pastors. And uh, he created his own training program, but he always kept them at a distance, uh, always kept them in need of him. And so they were constantly coming back. He was the authority and they were constantly coming back to, how do I think about this? What do I do with that? Uh, and so it was a perfect setup. So when they weren't loyal to him, when they disagreed with him, he could say, hey, it's, it's no longer working out. Um, you're not the right leadership fit for our team or you just don't have the creative energy that I need on my, whatever it might be, you know, he was always able to sort of um, shift them off to the side, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm not describing it well, but yeah, it does work in systems. And oftentimes we've got to sort of deconstruct the system, even after we ask a narcissistic leader to leave that particular system. Well, I thought I thought it was really important the way you distinguished because I read the ch the section on grandiose systems, and that seems to run right along the line of, you know, attention hungry leader, right. uh, dismissive of anyone who would disagree or dissent. But then you talked about vulnerable, and th the vulnerable system, and I thought, oh, nobody's talking about this. Right. That's right. As a form of, yeah. and if you, but people who have the experience with the Enneagram understand that there's a sort of pride that comes with the helpers. Right. <laughs> I yeah. need to be needed, and it, it turns from being helpful to being yeah. sin. And I saw that. Can you talk a little bit about the vulnerable system and what that actually looks yeah, like? Yeah, it's interesting. So we see this both in individuals and in systems. And so, you know, people will come to me sometimes and they'll say, you know, this person I'm in relationship with, he's not a, He's not grandiose in the typical sense of narcissism. He's kind of quiet and smug and self-absorbed and passive aggressive and hypersensitive, but it feels really narcissistic. It feels like it's all about him. Uh, and I'll say, yeah, that's, that's uh, what we call vulnerable narcissism. It's a, it's a unique brand of narcissism. And, and we see this in systems as well. And so just imagine for a moment, the grandiose narcissistic system in a church might be that mega church that uh, you know, has the, the the inspiring, bold, influential pastor, you know, and and uh, he might easily uh, be labeled as a narcissist. But think for a moment uh, of of a small church in a rural town, and this church uh, this church has about 150 people, and uh, they take pride in the fact that they have the right theology. They are the pure church. No one else is pure like they're pure, you know, and and uh, they're always quick to discipline or dismiss people who don't agree with them and think like them. And, um, and they take pride in the fact that they're really small and that they've got it right, you know, and that they could look down the road and we're, we're not liberal like they are. We're not conforming to the world like that church is, right? And so bo both churches see themselves as special. We're special because God has blessed us and we've got 8,000 people and we've got all the best programs. Or, or in the other case, we're special because we're small and uh and we're pure and um we've gotten rid of the people who uh who don't conform to our way of thinking etc cetera, etc cetera. it seems like that is somewhat of the poles that we see the polarities really easily i see that and and we were joking earlier about 
I think Twitter is the place where we can do our best work in understanding what narcissism is. For some reason, I have no idea why. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like that place right there seems to expound on it a bit. Uh, I'm thinking of of some of the relational impacts that narcissism has. Um, and so talk a little bit about, you know, if I'm someone who is involved in a narcissistic relationship, whether it's a parent-child or <clears throat> a marriage yeah. or the leader of my church, yeah. uh, how, or I'm a staff person <clears throat> on what, yeah. in what might be a narcissistic system, how do, I, how do I move forward? How do I do, how do I take steps in a healthy direction? Yeah. Well, I think sometimes the first piece is just to take seriously what you've experienced, what's happened to you. Um, I'll talk to uh, pastors who were a part of uh, a church led by a narcissistic pastor who will come to me and they'll say, I felt crazy. Sometimes I felt like maybe it is me. Uh, maybe there's something wrong with me. How come I can't keep up? Um, and, and so first and foremost, it, it begins with them taking seriously how they were harmed or even abused. Um, and I'm not afraid to use that word because there, there are subtle forms of spiritual and emotional abuse, psychological abuse that, that occur in situations like this. And so, um, and, and closely related to that is, is beginning to sort of monitor uh, trauma reactions in one's own body, you know, how one experiences trauma. And so I was just the other day, I was talking to someone who uh, 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 is a part of the fallout of this whole Acts 29 episode being talked about right now as we're recording. And uh, he was naming some, uh, just some basic symptoms, paranoia, uh, depression, sleeplessness, anxiety, uh, low confidence, um, uh, drinking a little too much alcohol, stuff like that. And I said, uh, do you realize that's trauma? Um, and and we've got to talk very specifically about how you deal with the trauma that now you now carry around in your body five years later. He had no idea. Um, he, he didn't connect his paranoia, his depression, his sleeplessness, his anxiety, his drinking, any of that to what had happened to him and the abuse that he experienced five years prior. Uh, but now it's alive and well in his body. And now I call this the debris field of narcissism. Now this is affecting his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his kids. She says he's checked out. She says he's distant. Now, now it's sort of, now he's got to take responsibility for what's happening in his own body and begin to do the work. Of course, he's got to grieve how he was hurt, but now he's got to take responsibility for how he's hurting others in his life. And so there is this kind of a ripple effect, uh, this debris field of narcissism that we see even over the course of years. Yeah. When we, my heart also, my heart goes out to people who have experienced trauma for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think we're our cultural movement, as much as we've talked about it, encouraging narcissism, that might be the dark side. The light side is we're actually acknowledging trauma. That's like saying this is trauma and uh, Me Too movement mm -hmm. are some of our reckoning with racial reconciliation yeah. Yeah. on multiple levels. Uh, and I and there's narcissism in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I see that come out in terms of fear. Uh, what's going to happen to me? Yeah. What if my place in the world changes and there's those little latent things. Yeah. 
are there practices and, and habits and disciplines that, since all of us are sort of, all of us have these tendencies in small ways, mm. what are some of the things that, that shape us away from narcissism and into both a healthy sense of self and a healthy sense of others? Yeah, that's right. That's good. You know, one of the things I appreciated about your book, as I recall, is you engage neurobiology. And uh, I do think that when we're trapped in um, narcissistic patterns, we're living in the more sort of anxiety-driven centers of our brain. We're living reactively uh, and uh, we're just surviving in the world. You know, narcissistic personality disorder is a survival style in the world. Um, if they allow me to do the work with them and if I can get down to the to, to what's most foundational, I'll find like a little eight-year-old boy who's ter terrified of the world. He's scared to death, right? So that that's what's going on inside. And so um, we're, we're living out of, uh, we're living out a really anxious style of relating in the world. And so uh, to get to your question, one of the practices is um, paying attention, paying attention to what's going on inside you, attending to your story, as, as you talk about in your book, so the narrative of your own life, how you've been hurt, how you've been wounded, how you carry pain, how you cope, um, attending to your body and the trauma that you carry around and how you're sort of compensating for that trauma. And so if we, if we can get to that with someone who is narcissistic or on the narcissistic spectrum, they'll inevitably have to talk about their own trauma story as well. But then I think another piece is honest relationship. Uh, one of the most important questions someone who is confronted with this might ask is, how do you experience me? And it's a really bold question. It's a really brave question. When I go in and do consulting, I'll often, it, let's just say uh, a lead pastor who uh, might be considered to be narcissistic, uh, an elder board has hired me to work with this church to try to understand whether or not he is. I'll ask him, would you be willing to sit down with a couple of staff members at a time or a couple of elders at a time and uh, ask, the, ask the question, how do you experience me? and really receive from them, you know, and honestly receive from them what they have to say. Uh, some will do that and some are terrified of doing that, but that's a practice. How do you experience me? Well, sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes you're intimidating. Sometimes I feel bullied by you. Sometimes you're just really confusing. One day you'll tell me I'm doing a really good job and the next day you'll tell me that, that um, I'm really falling behind and I don't know what to think. You're really confusing. Um, so th those are some practices, practices of, of attending to one's own life, one's own body, one's own story, practices of attending to one's relationships. How do you experience me? Whether with a spouse, staff members, an elder board, et cetera. Those are just some beginning practices that I think help. And that's an interesting idea because if a person is, you know, really deep into a narcissistic personality disorder, I would imagine there would be a reticence. That's right. A strong reticence to do that, which could be a, the biggest red flag of all. Like if you're not willing to hear what other people say about you in a very raw and unfiltered format. And so a practical note, that practice I'm assuming needs to happen with either a, a counselor, a therapist, or a, an unbiased third party that's right. Like how do, that how do you experience me conversation? I think so. I think so. I don't. I don't see. I don't see. Uh, I don't really see a narcissist. Uh, someone who is diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. 
uh, healing in any kind of way. And, I, and I, by the way, I think it's possible, and I know that's controversial, but I, I've worked with people with personality disorders for 20 years, and I, I've seen over the course of, usually it takes a decade, a couple of decades, I think it's possible, but I don't see it happening without uh, a village, as Hillary Clinton might say, of people who are willing to step in, and almost like an AA program, working the steps, you know, where you've, you've got to You've got to engage relationships with some honesty. You've got to ask people how you've harmed or impacted them negatively. Um, you've got you've got to to really be honest about the debris field of your own impact. And by and large, my experience working with uh, true blue narcissistic personality disorder disorder folks is they're not interested. Um, they're they're so self protective that they're not even willing to engage the conversation. Um, uh, I give them your book, Casey, and they'll say, this is just stupid. You know, I, I don't have time to look at myself. I'm, I'm working for the kingdom, Chuck. I'm, I'm all about God's glory. I've got things to do. I don't have time for this inner life stuff, you know? Uh, that's good. That counterbalances earlier when you were doing the endorsement. Like, yeah, your book's really good. And I give it to people and they're like, this is stupid. So I appreciate the appreciate the balance there. That's good. Perspective on that, right? So, I mean, the book you've written, I think, I think it's so powerful and I think it's so helpful. I wonder though for you, yeah, if you, what, what do you feel like, what is the gift you want this book to give to you know, the greater, the greater readership, the people who pick it up, what, what do you want them to walk away with? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so just a little backstory, this book came out of some work I did maybe three or four years ago with a church and, and a team of pastors who said to me at some point after our work was done, uh, we didn't have a resource. We didn't have something to pick up to, to understand what we were dealing with. Um, and they were actually some of the first folks who asked me to, to write this book. Uh, I didn't want to write uh, this book, uh, but as as I heard from people who said there really aren't resources out there to help us with this, uh, it just made sense. And so I want this to be a resource and a really easy, accessible resource that someone could pick up and say, this helps give definition to what I'm dealing with. It doesn't answer every question. It doesn't pursue every possible pathway. I think each one of the chapters could be books in and of themselves. I, do, I have a whole chapter in there called The Nine Faces of Narcissism, where I take the Enneagram and I sort of run with that as, as nine ways that narcissism shows up. And a friend of mine said, hey, I had that idea first. And I said, I, I just barely uh, dip my toe in the water. You go for it. Write that book. Uh, a chapter on emotional and spiritual abuse. Uh, years ago, one of the books I recommend is A Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse by Jeff Van Bonderen. Uh, really helpful book. Uh, but I had that slice of, of, uh, of a resource in this book. The definitions that I give, I, I hope that when people read you know, just what is narcissistic personality disorder and how does it play out in a church system or in a marriage, they'll say, oh, that's it. Now I know, I can see it. There, maybe there's some sense of validation, you know, that, ah, I'm not crazy after all. I can't tell you when I'm working with folks who've been impacted by narcissistic leaders or spouses, when I say you're not crazy, they'll come back to me three years later and they'll tell me those are the three most important words that you ever said. You're not crazy. 
And so I, I hope it's a book that just tells people you're not crazy. Um, but I, I think lastly, I'll say, I hope it's a book that gives people hope as well. Um, I know people say you're going to tick off some people by, by writing this book. And um, I think, yeah, I'll probably tick off leaders who don't want to be exposed for their narcissism. But I know, I know because this has happened already that I will tick off people who believe that there is no hope. Um, I, and I see it on Twitter all the time. Narcissists cannot be cured. Uh, and I just want to say, listen, I've worked with cluster B personality disorders, borderline and histrionic and narcissism. And maybe cure is not the right word. And I'm not talking about quick fix healing, but I have seen over the course of the, the long journey, as Eugene Peterson says, the long obedience in the same direction, um, growing humility, empathy. Uh, and, and so I, I, I want to say I have a lot of hope. Um, and it's because I believe that there's a story written on them that goes deeper than their personality disorder, um, that their lives are hidden with Christ and God, that they're image bearers. Um, that there's a true self buried within there. And it's my job to sort of explore that subterranean territory and, and, and find him, find her. This is brave work that you're doing. Just because the transformation almost never outruns the consequences yeah, that's right. and the abuse that people experience. And yet at the same time, we're, we're still after the transformation of the person That's right. who's exhibiting these patterns. So thank you for wading into shark infested waters <laughs> and living there, yeah. not just swimming through, yeah. but like staying there yeah. and uh, swimming with Jaws and uh, helping people find hope and healing in that. I, I really appreciate all you do, Chuck. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Casey. He's also a senior fellow at the Newbigin House of Studies in San Francisco. He served as a pastor at churches in Orlando and San Francisco and founded two church-based counseling centers. He's a licensed therapist, spiritual director, and the author of Toughest People to Love and Wholeheartedness. He is also the author of the book we talked about today, When Narcissism Comes to Church. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and like. If you're reading, <laughs> reading. Yeah, if you're reading this podcast, that's amazing. If you're listening to this, though, on iTunes, please rate and review the podcast when you get a chance. Listening on Google Play or Spotify, thank you so much for listening. If you're streaming via my website, thank you for that as well. Uh, please subscribe to any of those. Uh, it helps me understand what the podcast is doing, how many people are listening, and that just helps me to plan for future episodes and things like that. Um, if you were engaged deeply by the concept of narcissism, if there was some trauma that awakened in you, if you noticed some of these pieces, uh, maybe in the church you lead or maybe in the way that you personally lead, that's okay. It's not okay that it happened if you're in trauma, but it's okay for you to recognize that. As Chuck would say in the book, you're not crazy. But this is a moment and an invitation to encounter Jesus in the midst of that trauma, or if you're the leader who notices these characteristics in the midst of your leadership and say, where do we go from here? 
Chuck's book is a great example of how to do that. But if you need more help with that, please feel free to reach out via my website, caseytigret.com. I'd be happy to send you any resources that I have. And so as you go, may you recognize the God who heals, the God who restores, and the God who protects, goes with us and is with us at all times. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Mm